0: Before we dive into today's text, which we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. So if you've got a paper Bible or a digital Bible, you can go ahead and start turning there. Before we get into the text today, though, I want to remind you of something that's really significant. It's going to play a part in what we talk about today, but it's something important for you to understand every single day that you read God's word. There's significance, there is a significance, let me say it like this, to the literary devices that the authors used in the Bible. You say, Pastor, it sounds like you're talking like you did last week. Well, it is a little bit of a teaching series as we go through Revelation, because I'm trying to help you not just understand the words that we read in Scripture, but help you understand method. ...of how to really understand God's Word when you look at it. So you, we've talked about it recently, but just to remind you, there's poetry in God's Word. My daughter said recently to me, um, Daddy, I heard that there were some people in the old days... ...that didn't want the Song of Solomon in the Bible. And I said, yes, that's true, there were some. She said, so why is it in the Bible? I said, because God wanted it in there. (laughs) She said, it's so weird. I said, I know, we all think that. But here's the thing, it's poetry. It's the life experience of someone who God allowed that to be in the word of God. So you say, you know, even the weird parts? Yes. So there's history, there's storytelling, there's figurative language, there's um, illustrative language, there's symbolism, there's things that that are helpful to us. They may just be images of what we need. So I want to remind you that both literal and figurative language can be found in God's Word. What do I mean when I say that? I'll explain it. Not everything in God's Word, listen to me, especially my old, old, especially my senior saints, my older friends, okay? Don't get mad at me. Um, I'm not saying that the Word of God is not literal. I hope you hear my heart and understand the words that are on the screen. The Word of God is true, it is authoritative, it is meant for your life today. Miss Aaron shared verses of scripture from various places that all communicate the same truth. There is no doubt in my mind about the authorship of scripture or anything like that. But let me just say to you, the Bible is creative. It's got all these different genres of uh, uh, literature, but it also has figurative language as well. So there's literal language and there's figurative language, and you've got to know the difference. When you're reading God's word to be able to see it because not everything is literal, but that doesn't lessen its significance. Can I get an amen? In fact, I think the use of figurative language in the Bible adds to its beauty. It adds to the beauty of God's word and it always points you to something real. Can I get an amen? Figurative language that's in the word of God that might include symbols or things that are talked about is always pointing you to something that's tangible and real and concrete and has implication for your life. So let me give you two quick examples because you're going to need them when we go into Revelation 11. Here's an example of figurative language. If you look up Psalm 84 verse 11, this is a phrase out of that passage. It says, the Lord God is a son and shield now this is figurative language god is not our planetary like our solar systems sun that gives light to the earth and warmth to the earth but in the mind of the psalmist he was saying yes god does this for me the Lord is the son. He brings light to my life. This is what he means to communicate. Also, I would say about the other phrase there. The Lord God is a shield. He didn't mean he was an inanimate piece of armor that you put on. He meant what? Uh, just common sense. He meant that the Lord protects those who bear his name. Who carry his name. His children, he will protect them. This is good. It's figurative language. It it doesn't mean exactly what we read. It means something deeper. And so we need to understand the difference. Now, here's an example of literal language. This is beautiful. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says what it means, and it means what it says. It is literal. It is authentically true. And what it's communicating is this. Characteristically, Jesus is the same. His character has not changed. He has not gone from a young and dumb to an old and cranky. Okay? he. Are you with me? He has remained the same from the beginning of our time. And he's eternal. He's existed from before us, and will exist after this world is gone in the way that we understand it. Jesus Christ is the same. You can be assured of this, and this should give you confidence. There's no starting point to Jesus, no finish line to Jesus. He was, He is, and He is to come. This is literal, and this is truth. So is Psalm 84, when it says that Jesus, or that God rather, is a sun and a shield to me. It is true. So, understanding the difference between literal and figurative language is important, especially when we look at Revelation chapter 11 and forward in Scripture, um, because there are some scholars and theologians that argue certain passages are either literal or figurative. So there are some scholars that might say, well, you know, there weren't really seven churches. This was just symbolism to say, like, to these different regions. They'll, like, parse words all the way through and say, the whole book of Revelation is figurative. Or they'll have the belief that Revelation already happened. That these things talk about Nero and they reference other things that would have happened during John's day. But we understand that there are some literal things in there and some symbols that lead us to think about the future. Amen. In order to claim that something is figurative in the Bible, it's got to meet certain criteria. And I'm going to give you just two simple things to help you when you are looking through God's word to figure out whether it's figurative or literal. The first is this. It should be overt or obvious. Noticeable. I've told you this before. God wants us to be people of the spirit, but he wants us to be people of the word and to use our mind. When you read God's word, I've tried to erode that mythology that we have that the priest or the prophet sat there under a trance going like this and then woke and said, oh, look, what did I write? Okay, I've tried to help you personalize that and humanize it a little bit more because here's really the point. If God used them like that, like that crazy extreme example, then I'm just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs because surely he's not still doing that which means that I don't have any implication in my life that God's going to use me. But if I understand the humanity and the gifting and the personal preference and the fact that the psalmist really enjoyed poetry and loved to put things that rhyme and still communicated the truth of God's word, God used his gifts in who he was despite himself, then I have hope and confidence God can use ugly, old, pitiful me right? Can I get an amen? Not, not that I'm ugly and pitiful, but like that God can use me, okay? And, and that means God can use you. So it's got to be obvious, and it's got to be something that you can just engage your common sense and say, okay, he's not really saying that God is the sun, so we don't worship the, the planetary sun. We worship God who brings light to my life, amen? Okay, the second is this. You've got to find other examples. You say, well, what do you mean? Does it have to be word for word? Does, does the prophet, does Moses have to have said something about God being light? For David to say something about God being light? For Paul to reference about God being light? For that to make sense? It doesn't have to be the same exact thing, but you've got to find multiple examples that resemble it. For instance... If it's figurative language, Jesus is not a lion or a lamb. He's not an animal without a spirit. That's figurative for us to understand. He is the Passover lamb, the lamb who was slain for us. The Bible says from the foundation of the world, this was the plan of God that there would be a sacrifice and his sacrifice would be his son. So is he really a lion with a lion's mane? Well, that helps us understand there are multiple examples throughout Scripture. So then when I come to language that says Jesus will judge the earth, I do understand, wait a second, okay, that seems really literal. <laughs> that doesn't seem like, oh, he's going to put on some you know, robes, uh, robes and a gavel and that kind of stuff. I, I've got to see the difference. Are you with me? Say yes. Okay. So having these things in mind, we're going to dive into Revelation 11. And the title of the message today, which is very similar probably to the heading in your Bible, is the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet. We made it to the seventh trumpet, almost. Verse 1 in Revelation chapter 11. Then I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told... I'll explain some of this in just a moment. But as a reminder, six trumpets have happened. There have been some really bad things that accompanied those trumpets as we've talked through them. Plagues and things like that. The Bible says that there's one woe that has happened. Two more to come. Now we're witnessing part of that woe. And it's going to tell us at the end of this um, chapter before the seventh trumpet that that was the second woe and a third is to come. Okay? Okay? And John was told in Revelation 10 to eat the word, the scroll that was given to him by the mighty angel. And now he's been given a measuring tool. This is really interesting, but again, it's imagine it being like a dream state or vision. I've, I've had some crazy dreams. Have you ever had a crazy dream? Okay, I have a crazy dream that happened years ago that I woke up, and it was so vivid, and I've never really prayed for the interpretation of it. Uh, But it was very, very strange, and it was so vivid, I shared it with Amy and the kids. Well, every once in a while, if I wake up from a nap, and I say, man, I had some wacky dreams, the girls will say, did you have one of your goldfish dreams? Because I dreamt that my stomach was a goldfish bowl, and you could see through it, and there was a goldfish swimming in it. If you have the interpretation for that and there's a spiritual implication, please let me know. Okay, That all to say, John is witnessing some stuff, either in a vision or in a dream-style state. And some of it is really hard for him to kind of put into words. In fact, a lot of scholars and theologians say he's kind of messy in the way that he's like put it all together. Because he's stringing metaphors from different places all together and they're sandwiched together. But now he's been given a measuring tool to measure the temple of God as well as the altar. And catch this, there are two different people groups in the first three verses. There are two different people groups. The first is those that worship. And the second is those that trample. Don't be one that tramples. Be one that worships. So he's given this instruction by a voice. We're not told who the voice is, but it seems apparent that it's the voice of God speaking to him. Uh, it, it would be weird to have a tape measure given to you to tell you to go and do this. But this is his, this is his vision of what he is seeing. And he's told to measure everything except for the outer court. If you go back to the vision, not the vision, if you go back to the um, image that's given in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, there is an outer court for the tabernacle that in the New Testament becomes known as the Gentiles' court, where the nations who were proselytized, anybody who wanted to, could come and become a worshiper in that setting. So... John is told, don't go measure that one, measure everything else. He's told that the holy city will be trampled for 42 months, and then we're introduced to these two witnesses that the Bible says will be given authority by God to prophesy for 1260 days. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and I know school has started for some of us, if not all of us. If you do your math, even with today's calendar... 42 months is very close to 1,260 days. Their calendar was a little bit different back then than our calendar is now, but I want you to see this because this is important. In other words, what John is seeing is these two prophets who will, two witnesses who will prophesy for the same period of time that the holy city gets trampled on. What does that mean? The, the word trampled that is Uh, interpreted or um, translated for us means it will be ruined, destroyed, ransacked. Uh, It'll get run over, essentially, and beat up is what's going to happen. And these prophets, these witnesses, will be prophesying during that entire time. They'll be prophesying in grieving clothes. I bet you don't own any sackcloth because this would be goat hair clothing. (laughs) That is worn in the Old Testament period of time as well as in the New Testament when people mourned. And did you know that you could actually hire mourners to add to the party it's not a party I'm sorry but to add to the group because like if it was a person who died and there was just a small group of people then you'd go knocking on doors and say hey we're having a funeral tomorrow and so-and-so passed away uh will you come and be part of the the group well they literally had hired mourners in some settings and they would put on goat hair style clothing that was what we would consider probably black or dark that covered their head covered their face that looks like something's really wrong with you. So these prophets are told in the way that John sees it they're instructed and they have sackcloth on and the prophecy that they're prophesying is not a, God's gonna bless you, he's gonna pour out a great, it's not that kind of thing. You didn't know I had that voice in me, did you? It's more like God has pronounced judgment on the earth. Judgment is coming. And so they're prophesying and symbolically they are wearing sackcloth because this shows the grief and the mourning that they have. It enhances the message that they are delivering. Here's where I need to revisit the topic of why I went on that little rant at the beginning about figurative and literal language. The months and days in the first three verses are disputed among theologians and scholars. Some consider them figurative and just say, well, it just is a long period of time. Others say they're literal. But the problem with believing that they're figurative is that you have no other evidence for numbers being only figurative in the book of Revelation or elsewhere in the Bible. And can I just say this while we're talking about numbers? God doesn't speak to us in code. <laughs> I don't know if you watched the movie or bought the book. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> but I'm telling you, there's no special secret code to decipher. God wants His people to know His Word. He doesn't make it hard. Yes, there's some study that needs to go into it. Yeah, there's some cool nuance and there's some... Hints at things that happened back in the day that we can read about in today, but I'm telling you what, God's word is clear. So, in the absence of other examples or other evidence, either in the direct context of the chapter or elsewhere in Revelation, the numbers that are mentioned have got to be literal and they are congruent. This is a math term. I know, I'm sorry. Most of you would know this because you're adults, but just in case you forgot, because we do forget what happened in ninth grade, except for the good things, right? Congruent means if you put one on top of the other, they're the same. It's a mathematical term that means they equal the same. So 1260 days is equivalent to 42 months, okay? Then you're going to have to do a little bit of math and research about the calendar they used back then and figure out there's a couple differences of days, but John's point remains, There are two witnesses prophesying. There There is bad stuff happening in the city outside of the temple. It's not happening inside God's presence. Can I get an amen? In the vision that John has, he's given us concrete numbers for everything. Listen to me and make sure you're awake this morning. He's given you exact, precise, literal numbers... In every other portion of scripture, Revelation 1-1 all the way to Revelation 11. Seven churches actually existed. The list of 144,000 that we talked about is a literal number of 12,000 from 12 tribes, another math term. It would be the sum total of 12,000 from each of those 12 tribes that get mentioned. So... The plagues and the disasters that strike when it says that a third of the crops or a third of the people were killed. I'm not sitting here trying to figure out what exact number that is. I know it's a lot. I don't know what the population is at that point. I have no idea that point that he's living in or the point in the future that it's going to happen. I'm not sure, but I do know that God's word is true and a third means a third. (laughs) So there's no reason to believe that the two witnesses that John just introduced us to, two, are more than two. They are literal and real people as well. He doesn't tell us their names, but we know that there are two of them. And there's no reason to believe that they're figurative or symbolic at all, because he tells us, that they're doing something, that they're instructed by God to do, and he sees them in this vision, dressed in sackcloth, doing what God told them to do. Interesting. We get the word martyr from the same root word that John uses for witness. Say, I want to be a witness for Jesus. Well, in the original language, that meant that you were willing to give up everything, including your life, to be a witness It has a judicial connotation um, to be a witness in a trial. Uh, That sort of language is present. And so there are plenty of speculative options about who these two witnesses are. But you cannot be dogmatic about who they are because the Bible doesn't tell you who they are. So don't go unfriending somebody who says that they're Moses and Elijah. Well, if they themselves say, I am Moses or Elijah, then you can unfriend them. That was too much for you this morning. Okay, let me, it's too much, too fast, too quick. Okay, if they say, I know these two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation 11, they are Enoch and Elijah. I know, here's proof. No, they don't. Okay, it's, it, you can look through scripture and you can find some resemblances, but we don't know if they're Moses and Elijah. We don't know if they're Enoch and Elijah. We don't know. And here truly, there's nothing in Revelation 11 that requires them to be famous people that you know from the Old Testament or New Testament. There's nothing. God chose two people. So what? Who cares? He chose them to do a job to prophesy and to say, hey, listen, here's your your last moment. Turn. You better turn. You better turn. He's got this plan And we like to just get in the weeds about who these two people are. But the Bible doesn't tell us. And they could have been unknown people to John. They could have been unknown to his readers. And they can be unknown to us as re-readers. But that doesn't make them fake or not real. They are real. Okay, let me clearly say this. If you are not able to, with observation, common sense, and other supportive evidence found in God's word, to back up what you say, then you shouldn't say it. Let me put it in a different way. You cannot, even though culture is pushing us to, you cannot make God's word say something it doesn't, and you shouldn't deny something that God's word does say. You say, well, pastor, uh, that seems really targeted. It is. It's very targeted to the culture of the system of this world and the rulership and those in authority, whether they be human or of a spiritual nature. I'm telling you, there is a battle happening right now. And there are people, there are churches with crosses on steeples that are hanging other flags that are rewriting God's word. And that's not just to single out one initiative. I'm telling you, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And so you've got to protect those freedoms that you have, but you've got to understand that God's word says certain things. Does he say that humans are valuable? Yes. So you better protect human life at all costs. You mean if there was a gunman in front of me, between me and the boss I hate, I should save the boss I hate? Yes. You shouldn't hate them to begin with, but if you do, you should still preserve their life. Why? Because that's a biblical concept, and it's something truly throughout God's Word. So we represent to the culture and the system of this world what God's Word says. That's why we're to live different. That's why we're to be a peculiar people. I took my daughter this week. We were in Columbus, Ohio, and had a whirlwind of a trip and a summer And she did awesome. Her band did awesome. They essentially earned excellent marks, quote unquote, excellent marks, not superior, which would have been the first part or first place, but um, excellent is the second place in their categories. It was awesome. We went to the Ark Museum in, I guess it's Lexington, Kentucky, took the two hour drive and stayed there for four hours and took the two hour drive back home. It was incredible. To walk through that, that museum and all of the exhibits that were in there. And they had this special one about God's word and the development and the Tyndale and the Gutenberg Press and all of these different things. It was awe-inspiring to see the history of God's word. And then I had this thought and thought, man, how many people have ruined it or attempted to ruin it. In our hotel room, there was the Holy Bible donated by the Gideons, who we support their ministry. I'm very thankful for the Gideons International that do this. And on top of it was a smaller book called the Book of Mormon. Don't ask me what I did with the Book of Mormon in that hotel room, but I will tell you (laughs) there is still a Bible in that hotel room. Hallelujah. Because you have to make sure that you live according to the word. That's why I tell you, you got to read it. To know it, and otherwise you're going to be pressured by the things of this world and the people, the influences around you that Aaron references before. You're going to be pressured to start believing something that is not true. The Apostle Paul says there's whole churches and groups of people in the New Testament that were dealing with that, and they were exchanging the truth of God's word for a lie. Don't do that. So don't attempt to make the Bible say something it doesn't. Don't make those two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, or Elijah and Enoch, or whoever. You don't have to. Don't be dogmatic about it. But you should be dogmatic about things like Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So talking about the coding that people talk about, not like computer codes but there are people who want to find like hidden meaning and all that stuff and numbers and everything within the word of God um, and I, I even watch somebody who's really famous who I actually like some of the things I've heard him say before and preach about and he's authored some books I heard him recently talk about like something about the alphabet in Hebrew and how every other something in Genesis spells out Jesus and there's like Okay, great. You can spend all the time you want to doing stuff like that, or you can just read it and start to say, Holy Spirit, will you help me understand it? And then look for other references inside of God's Word that back up and show you what it means. Amen? God wants His Word to be intelligible, understandable. He speaks to us clearly through His Word and His Spirit, but... um, we need to understand this about the two witnesses and about the days because there are people, there are scholars and authors who have said those two witnesses already happened and they are so-and-so. So if, we, if we're if we to read it the way that we read it here in this church, we believe this is a future event that John is witnessing in the future, then there's going to be a period of time where there are two witnesses prophesying and there are tons of people on the outskirts of the holy city, the Bible says. Ransacking it. Jump to verse 4. It continues talking about the two witnesses. Now this is where it does have some interesting uh, correlation to Zechariah chapter 4. So if you want to write that down, I don't have time in today's message to unravel all of that or expose all of that. Zechariah 4 has some some exact language that mirrors what you're about to read in verse 4. Talking about the two witnesses, it says these are the two olive trees. Obviously, they're not trees, they're people. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Okay, stop reading and just listen to me for a second. The fire that comes from their mouth, this gets into figurative language. The fire coming out of their mouth is not going to literally singe the human skin. It's saying the message that they are proclaiming is going to cause devastation. It doesn't mean they have a hand on a zipper to the sky to shut the sky. It means just like the Old Testament prophet Elijah who said, there will be no rain, there will be no rain if these prophets prophesy this. They've been given authority by God in order to do this. It says this, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. There are some reasons why people believe that these could be Moses and Elijah because Moses was present when water turned to blood. Are you getting that? Shake your head at me, nod at me, okay? So turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this is a devastating time that is going to happen. They use their mouth as their weapon because they've been given authority to do so. Verse 7, when they've finished their testimony or their time has been completed according to the word of God, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and here's something sad. The beast will conquer the two witnesses and kill them. The Bible, pick, uh, John, gives us paints a, a grotesque picture here. Their dead bodies will lie in the great in the in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Okay, here's something really important. Sodom is not near Egypt. Okay, so they're they're away from each other. But John is speaking something figurative and symbolic to say that the people of Jerusalem have committed the sins of Sodom and of Egypt. They're faithless. They've walked away from God. And those, those things are important to see because Jerusalem is never called Sodom or Egypt in Scripture. But it says clearly, John says, symbolically it's been called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? The city of Jerusalem. So we have to understand there's some figurative language and literal language in here as well. Verse 9. Three and a half days some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze upon the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. How disrespectful. How disrespectful to not bury the dead. This is something that the people, the readers of John's revelation, the first audience would have thought, and this still resonates with us today. How dare you? No, give me the body of my dead, of my dead family or relative or whatever, so that I can bury them. But it says they'll refuse to let them be buried. And here comes some good news. It says after verse 10, it says those who dwell on the earth rejoice over them, make merry and even exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And the good news is in verse 11, but after that three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. John is witnessing this. And they stood up to their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Raised from the dead. A public resurrection. It's hard to not see the correlation between the prophets of old who were killed for what they said. Jesus who was killed for what he said. And then the disrespect of the dead. Now these two two, uh, witnesses suffer the same fate. But they also experience the same joy that Jesus did. Because they get resurrected. Look at what it says here in verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them. So again, John is a witness to this happening. And he hears the voice speak to them and says, come up here. And they went up to heaven. How? In a cloud. Who else went to heaven in a cloud? Jesus. Okay. There are some other examples, but Jesus strikes my mind very quickly. His transfiguration after his resurrection, he leaves the earth that way. So they are resurrected as Jesus was resurrected. They're leaving the way he's left. And it says, the Bible tells us, John says, and their enemies watched it happen. So this is not a secret thing that is going on. This is a public thing that is going on. It says this, verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tithe, a tenth. Of the city fell. Meaning they were dead. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And it says. And the rest were terrified. And gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 14 tells us. The second woe has passed. Behold a third is soon to come. So. Now we've arrived at the seventh trumpet. Okay. There's been some crazy things that have happened. Through these trumpet. Um, periods or cycles now we've arrived at the seventh trumpet in verse 15 it says this the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven and they were saying something amazing they were saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever Verse 16, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell down on their faces and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is the moment leading up to the coronation we've been waiting for. The nations raged, verse 18 says, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is a praise song. This is a worship moment happening in the throne room of heaven. It says in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. My daughter and I, as we traveled this past week, um, we were on four different flights. You know, had a connection on the way there, had a connection on the way back. On the way back last night, our flight was delayed taking off which meant that we were going to be really tight on our connection in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the plane was going to be boarding, if not leaving, within five minutes of our arrival. If you've ever been in an airport and been stressed, (laughs) you understand what was going through our minds. And of course, you know, they're like, oh, you can pay $12 for Wi-Fi. No, just I'll figure it out when I get there, you know. Thankfully, as soon as we get cell reception down on the ground, I'm hitting the buttons. Everything's refreshing. That plane is delayed. And I'm like, we still have to run, but it's going to be okay. So I'm telling you, it was a 15-minute, even with people movers, running full sprint, three terminals away. Why an airline? decides to have its connection three terminals away. I'll never be able to tell you an answer. So here Madeline and I are. Both have a carry-on. Both have a backpack, or She's got a purse. And we are running. When I tell you sweat, and we're running with people. There are people who are out of the way, diving out of the way, Running, running, running. People everywhere going. their different connections. We passed this line of 100 or so folks. Apparently their flight got canceled. There was some bad weather over there in that area. And whatever happened, we made it. We made it to the gate. And it got delayed even a little bit longer so that we got in really late last night. But at least we had a flight. Okay? You say, Pastor, why are you, why are you telling me this? Because of this last verse we just read. So Madeline and I were sitting on the plane, we're about to take off, the pilot, <laughs> there's a funny story I can tell you about my luggage later, it, it'll, it'll make you laugh, but we finally take off, and the pilot comes on the radio and says, I'm going to keep the, the seatbelt sign on the whole time, we're going to fly through some turbulence, uh, it's probably going to be pretty rough, um, but we'll get you there safely, you know, blah, 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 blah. So we're sitting there, no big deal, <laughs> Totally fine. I've been on dozens of flights in my life. I've had some turbulence. Yeah. Not like last night. We fly into the cruising altitude, and it was a puddle jumper if I ever saw one. You could have sworn the guy was Fred Flintstone with pedals, okay? I mean, it was it was bad. It was tiny. I mean, if you're above five foot, you had to go like this to get into the plane and walk down the aisle. So, we go into cruising altitude, and all of a sudden, we hit this turbulence. And Madeline is looking out the window, and she's seeing these flashes of lightning, streaks just going through the sky. And we see that we're in cloud cover, and we can no longer see the lights of the cities below us that we're passing. It's terrifying because you can see the red blinking lights from the wings of the plane illuminating the clouds, the lightning striking through the thing, and then all of a sudden we drop at least 100 feet. It could have been more, but I'm telling you, it rattled me to my core. Madeline and I held hands, both of us just praying. (laughs) I don't care who's in here who hates God, I'm praying to my God right now. Because if this plane goes down, I'm going to meet him while I'm talking to him. Okay, This is how this is going. And I began to think about that this morning as I was reviewing my notes. Because the theophanies of scripture, that is to say the appearances of God that happened throughout scripture, like him on the mountain when Moses receives the law, include these peals of thunder and lightning. Let me tell you something. It was terrific in the truest sense of the word last night we had terror in our hearts for the course of 30 seconds that seemed like 30 minutes okay it was the longest longest like of our life you could hear the bags sliding back and forth all this crazy stuff and i thought to myself anybody who witnesses what John is saying that he witnessed in Revelation 11 about around the throne of God. There were rumblings of thunder, flashes of lightning, an earthquake now, and heavy hail. It is going to be terrific in the truest truest sense of the word. But I think... We ought to shout in joy because we know that our Redeemer is now doing what the 24 elders praised Him for. And He is taking all authority and He has begun to rule. Amen? So the great God of heaven is alive and active. He's alive and active in John's vision. He was alive and active very much so last night and probably just got a giggle because of how scared we were at just this small thing. And I'm thinking, man, I feel like the disciples on the boat with Jesus. Okay, God, where are you? What are you doing? But he might have just had a giggle because it was a small thing. In this day and age, thousands of years after John has written this revelation, We are still heading towards a finale. And I'm telling you something. Our God is not dead. He is alive. We have something to look forward to with hope. Uh, If you need prayer today for any reason, you say, Pastor, this is great. You explained Revelation 11, but I'm going through this hardship and I need some help. Um, We want to pray with you. We've got people who are trained to pray with you. I will pray with you. Um, prayer team members if you want to go ahead and step out to that side Uh, brother Paul and Don if you'll go that way and I'll go over this way Um, we want to pray for you every week we pray for people by name we pray for salvation Miss Sandra thank you we pray for um, healings we pray for financial difficulties we pray for marriages we pray for anything that's on your heart we've I've prayed for sick animals here in this church building at the end of service um Because I believe that our God hears. Amen? Would you stand to your feet today? We're going to sing our encore worship song. It's just a final song of worship. And it's very fitting today. It's called the Revelation song. And it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Amen? Today, I want you to know that the same God who created you and loves you and values you, just like Aaron spoke about earlier, is the same God who's still alive today, and he's listening, and he wants to be with you. So if you need prayer for any reason, I want you to just step out while we all worship the Lord in this last moment together.
1: Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Let's sing that again, Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Oh,